I'll just add something to that. Uh, I was going to say thank you guys for being here. And the Chillin, I really love your ministry and are fans of yours. And I've probably listened to a number of the messages you've preached here and around a few times, Chris. And Meryl, I don't know if you know this, but I really enjoyed doing AV when you were preaching at the ladies' meetings because then I got to kind of sneak in and listen to what you had to share. But you guys might not know this, especially if you're newer, but Chris was sharing with us this week how long their friendship with this church goes back. So beyond just their preaching and their ministry, uh, before this church was started 37 and a bit years ago, they were involved in the lives of the people who would start this community. And Chris was telling us about how he led worship here back in the day when it was needed. He's preached here for years. He's probably counseled and they've inputted into all of the big decisions that we've done. So these are real friends to the church. So it's great to have you guys here as friends, as leaders, as preachers, as ministers, as all sorts of things. And we're just looking forward to what you've got to share. Thank you. Cheers, thanks. You enjoyed that, didn't you, Nick? <coughs> Morning, everyone. It's our absolute joy to be here. Um, first things first, we are going to have the privilege of just setting Mike and Megan back onto their eldership team. This is not ordination. They've already been ordained, but uh, they spent uh, what, two years, three years in Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, did an outstanding job in undergirding a very vulnerable church, a very vulnerable community. And uh, we saw them a number of times, both when I went into North Carolina, as well as events that we did around the U.S., and uh, it's with great sadness that I pray them in today because we wanted them to come to the West Coast. We wanted them to come to LA and join us. A number of churches, the only thing was show me the money, and we had none. So we had to let them come home to you. So your gain is our loss. And uh, we, we did a ching chong cha with a few churches to see who won, and you won. So, so, so you have them. Um, so why don't you two come up here? While they do, and I'm going to have the elders join me, but it's nice for the newer people just to kind of see them. Um, but uh, this is a remarkable couple, and as Grant said, Meryl and I have been involved in this church when it was kind of a seed idea with Rob and Dave. Uh, when, when we were still in Westville, I was single. I, I think I was about 19, and I did, the, I did the worship, and Rob did the preaching, and Dave did the catching. They were great days, you know. The three of us worked well together. And... Um, Mike and Megan initially as single people, then as, as kind of a, a couple slash family, have been an incredible asset to this community. The invisible nature of their endless service is a great kingdom asset. And uh, what they've brought in their love for people, what they've brought in their creating of an ambience and ecology for God to minister is uh, known wide. And I'm not joking when I say a number of churches in the U.S. would love to have had them with was there a way to get a salary for them? So it really is your gain. This is not ordination. This is simply they've been out on apostolic adventure. Uh, this, they've been out on an adventure. They did a fabulous job. They honestly, they were incredibly kind, incredibly sacrificial, incredibly generous, um, really muscled a community that was this close to dying. The first time I went into that community, they asked me if I'd get involved, and I said no, because it was so complex, and so it was limping almost beyond life, and they didn't say no, they said yes, and they went in, and there's a community that's standing now in, uh, it's not Raleigh, it's North, 
Hillsborough. And it's standing to a large extent, honestly, because of their love, service, and caring. So with the rest of the eldership team and wives, please join us. Uh, I'm just going to pray over them. I love you can come, of course. And uh, Guy, I don't know if you want Tion to come up here. <laughs> just to make you feel uber cool, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, it's fabulous. <clears throat> Um, Lord, these are special family moments. We, we celebrate the diversity of gifting. We celebrate the uniqueness of gifting. We celebrate a family who only knows sacrifice, love, and service, who have no other vocabulary, no other language, uh, no other way of demonstrating the advancing kingdom but to lay their lives down for the benefit of others. Never have never asked much for themselves, have only asked what they can give. And it's really with great joy that we publicly reinstate them onto this team. Their heart has never left. Their assignment was different. But they come back to pour themselves out uh, one more time, one more season. Thank you for their ability to love. Sometimes it seems endless. Thank you for their capacity to serve. It sometimes seems tireless. Thank you for their ability to integrate the limping, the hurting, the broken. It sometimes um, just feels as if they are incapable of saying no to the hurting and the limping. We reinstate them onto eldership here, Lord. May their contribution add to the rhythm of grace, the evidence of grace that's already prevalent here. And may this team be stronger, richer, more diverse, more colorful, more creative because of their returned presence. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Give them a round of applause. Thanks, Guy. All right. Well, it's my privilege to open up the Scriptures. Um, uh, it really is just an incredible joy to be here. I, we've been on vacation, Meryl and I and T. Uh, it was Meryl's folks' 60th wedding anniversary and so the family flew in from different parts of the world to be here. We were in the Kruger, we were in Sabi, and that was that part of it. And I just bring great news from the church in Mauritius. I spent a week ministering there, then vacation for a couple of weeks. And I must tell you that uh, Phil and Lee have been a phenomenal revelation there. Um, they have loved, yeah, absolutely. They have, um, I actually said to Phil, there's a possibility Meryl and I will go back to L.A., uh, Orange County, actually, to go and lead a church of about a thousand people. And um, I said, Phil, watching you here, I realize the most important thing to do in a newer community is to love them. And I've watched Lee, who was a little bit of a mouse here, quiet, retiring, happy not to be front and center, leading the ladies' meeting. Mer Meryl spoke. Uh, she was, uh, Phil popped in for coffee one day, and I said, where's Lee? Why doesn't she join us? We just have lunch together, and Lee had to go and wash off the paint because she'd been helping paint the church building. And uh, they're, they're, the, the way in which they have come with abandoned humility, extravagant love, has been a revelation. And uh, so the last Sunday we were there, I wasn't preaching. We kind of snuck in. I thought I wouldn't tell him ahead of time that we were coming, and we kind of snuck in, and we were just congregants like you. And it was wonderful to see the community operate, function, and the response and the banter and the affection that was so apparent both in the room during the gathering but also afterwards over what seemed to be endless cups of tea and bad coffee. So... Um, <laughs> 
maybe you can go and help them, Mike. Maybe you can teach them how to make good coffee. Um, so well done. Thank you for sending them. Thank you for believing in them. Thank you for creating a really great testimony of uh, a glorious gospel on the island. And uh, the church is doing well. It really has a sense of health to it. We are in the conversation of bringing on some elders. And that's going to be an exciting new chapter to the story. Uh, this is a community that Meryl and I are incredibly fond of because we were here kind of from before the beginning. And uh, all these years later, Rob and Glenda were dear friends of ours, Sean and Nola. My daughter married their son, go figure. Um, and obviously Nick and Cutty. Um, it's been a fabulous journey through those leaders, but also the many other relationships that we've accrued en route. And it's an absolute joy and privilege to be here. I have felt the weight of responsibility this weekend. I have felt like God's wanted to do some pretty cool things. So to be honest, I'm a little nervous, which is unlike me, um, because I want to represent him so wonderfully well. If you are newer to the Jesus story, thank you for creating an opportunity for us to love you and to open the scriptures to you. Much of what happens here is probably a bit strange for you, maybe a little bit different. We forget we've been in church for so long that it's all familiar I was in Canada, and I was invited to go to an ice hockey game. And uh, from the moment we arrived in the parking lot, because that's what the Canadians do, they love ice hockey, I realized I was totally out of sync with everyone else. I mean, they had the war paint on and the jerseys. And as we were walking from the parking lot into the uh, stadium, the kind of indoor ice hockey rink, they were quoting stats, and this guy's playing, and that guy's playing. And I realized I don't have the vocabulary. I don't have the dress code. I don't have the war paint. Then the people who took me were regulars. They had their regular seats just behind the goalie. And um, from the moment the guys came onto the ring skating, I was completely out of my depth. And you know, it was like a Mr. Bean moment where everyone else did it, then I did it. You know, it was like uh, I watched and then I, and I thought, I don't even know what to shout. So I just went, ah! Because I thought, I'm not, I don't know what I'm supposed to say but, and, and look good because someone's on the ground bleeding. That probably means good, you know. Uh, it's legalized street fighting. And, um, and as I was sitting there, the Spirit of God said, but Chris, that's what people feel like who never come to church. You expect them to fit in. You just expect them to know. I thought, wow. And that moment was a sublime moment for me that changed my lenses on how we do gatherings and how much of our gatherings are designed simply for the church that those who aren't churched, and if you're one of those this morning, thank you for being here. Uh, so much of what we do that's so familiar to us. Who's the guy who just stood up? What's his name? What does he do? Why is he so cool and French-like? What, what, what's, what's all that? We, we, is, is he the priest here? Is, is he the priest? Is, is, is he the guy? But then why is he married? You know, it's like all that crazy stuff we go through. So thank you for being here with us. Grab your Bibles, please. I'm going to exegete a passage of Scripture, which means I'm going to open up the text and be quite systematic in my teaching this morning. Um, well, i say that up front, but it may not happen. So 1, Corinthians, 1 John, please. We're going right to the back of the Scriptures. It's a great little chapter, a little book of five chapters. And I will explain the story behind the story briefly, but I want to read the Scripture and pray, and then we can get into it. Uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, I'm reading from the ESV, which is a particular translation um, that I'm using today. This is the message, 1 John 1, verse 5, right towards the end of the Bible. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, 
that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and the word, His word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation. It's a big word. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Father, I ask that you would grant us insight that something will be here for all of us today. For me, for the hearers, for the friends, the family members who are here, that something will grab our heart. Would you arrest us, change us, transform us, impact us today? For those who've heard countless eons of messages, let it not be another brick in the wall. Let it be a moment to God encounter a truth revealed a challenge included. And may you do today, O oh God, what only you can. Take a written word of the sacred text and transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this book. Um, here's the story behind the story. John was the last living Jesus apprentice. It was written right about eight, uh, AD 85 to 90, the clever people tell us. And uh, so he was well into his 80s. Um, all the other disciples of Jesus, the, the apprentices, were dead. Uh, he outlived them by quite a bit. Even Paul, Timothy, and the others who had come after Jesus' death, they were all dead. And he was an old man. And if, if Nick or whoever hosted this morning, Grant, said, actually, we're very honored today to have John, the last living man who had walked with the Christ, I think all of us would lean forward in our seat. He probably would have hobbled his way to the front. He would have stood here for a moment, gathering his breath, looking at the audience with incredible love because his lecture, which I think is what this is, it's one of his lectures, are full of the language of family, love, and affection. My little children, fathers, young men, it's full of family language. And I think all of us would, would lean into it to say, this is the closest in person we would ever get to Jesus. He's going to tell us what Jesus told him for three years. It's also remarkable because he's writing this to the churches that he loved and served under. Back in those days, uh, there was a lot of letter writing that was spread out amongst the churches uh, unlike the, the ability to have screens and in person. And so this would have been sent around Turkey or Asia Minor, as it was then, to all the churches, and they would all le read it and discuss it and, and, and identify the big God ideas in it. So not only was he the last man who knew Jesus, who was still alive, he was writing with incredible fatherly love and affection. But I think of equal importance is the fact that he was reminding us of the most important things. I remember when Dudley Daniel was leaving Los Angeles, Meryl was helping Anne, his wife, move. Dudley was dying. He actually died twice, and they managed to resuscitate him, gave him a liver which didn't take a second liver, 
which uh, has given him longevity of life. And I remember Meryl and I being asked by him to come and sit on the veranda in the patio while Anne was packing, and he was battling to talk, battling to breathe, and he kind of spoke in words and phrases rather than sentences and paragraphs. And he looked at each one of us as if giving us the final kind of fatherly mandate. Please don't forget this, is what he said as he spoke to Merrill, as he spoke to me. And I remember taking him to the airport as he flew back to Australia for treatment that ultimately saved his life. I stood there watching a man I loved dearly who was my spiritual father, wondering if I would ever see him again. But those moments on the patio were, were powerful moments because I knew that every word mattered. Every idea was weighted. And ladies and gentlemen, when we read this book in its unique looping or cyclic style, he makes a point, he describes the point, and then he cycles back to make the point again. He is so desperate for us to get this. This is what he says is highly valuable. Please don't forget. So I've given my, my subject this morning the title, Lest We Forget. And can I for a moment address my peers? I'm 58 in a couple of weeks' time. And it feels like my 40 years of walking with Jesus has been but a heartbeat. And I've seen over the years many emphases come and go. Many things that were made big by the church in a fleeting moment, and but a few years later, it whittles down to insignificance. And I'm not even sure it's all wrong, but I want to say to those of you who, like me, could easily become passive, disengaged, grumpy, cynical, and uh, uh, lose this, the vitality that Christ first infused us, as Meryl so wonderfully pictured this morning. He has an old man who has lived till the end, who was on the Isle of Patmos, who sat weeping as he looked just across the straits as 40,000 of his sons and daughters in the faith were being slaughtered for their faith, and he could but weep. There is no time for passivity, disengagement, cynicism, there's only time for active engagement. I remember in the 70s meeting a man called Joseph Corboy. Joseph was part of the struggle, and God saved him in one point in prison, and he started a work, a great work as it was then. I haven't seen Joseph for many, many, many years. But he said he used to keep a suitcase by his door, and uh, when the Sikh security police would come and fetch him, he would pick it up and he would hug his wife and hug his kids, not knowing when he would see them again, but knowing that he so believed in the ultimate dignity of all people and the value of every man, woman, and child that he was prepared to go to prison and die for it. And I sat there somewhat mesmerized by a man with such conviction, and I thought, does my gospel empower me with that same level of passion and intensity? Do I have a proverbial bag at the door that at any time, when this time God comes or one of his messages comes, am I so ready? Is my family so ready and so mobile that I can pick up my suitcase at the door and say it is time to move on? Or have I lost my sense of passion and value for the kingdom and the power of the gospel that I'm so set that nothing can mobilize me. What John is fighting, and we hear this in a one half of the conversation, he's fighting what we in a generic way called Gnosticism. And let me but say this about Gnosticism because it's quite a complicated philosophical idea. Fundamentally, Gnostics say 
Matter is bad, spirit is good. Matter is bad, spirit is good. And you think, well, Chris, that doesn't really matter to me in my life. It has no implications. A story. A young pastor said to me the other day, he said, you know what's interesting, Chris, in America? He said, in the last while I've married 40 young Christian couples. Of the 40 young Christian couples, only two have not slept together. 38 couples have not seen any incongruity with the fact that they were being promiscuous and adulterous, sleeping with each other outside of marriage as if it has no impact whatsoever. And my dear friends, both by proclamation, the pulpit, as well as by lifestyle, you and I are sometimes led to believe that I can do external things. It has no bearing. I can watch pornography and lead worship on a Sunday. It has no bearing on my life. That is pure Gnosticism. It's not grace. It's Gnosticism. It's saying matter doesn't matter. Matter bad, spirit good. As long as you guard your spirit is what the Gnostics argue. It does not matter what I do with this body. It absolutely does. And John is fighting that. If I had time to open up some of the Gnostic pieces here, you would sit there and say, oh my goodness, I've heard that guy teach that. I've heard that guy teach that. I've seen that church live that. Because Gnosticism is the dreadful surrogate travel companion of the church. She's always been there for 2,000 years. And John fights that with three introductory statements. Are you still with me? He fights that with three introductory statements, and here they are. Number one, he says, this is the message. Here it is. If you've got your Bibles, go to verse 5. It says, this is the message. In other words, there's one message. There's one primary driving essential message that we can never deviate from. We can never ever split and make something else the driving message. Israel, or the poor, or social justice. All of those things are incredibly important, but they are never the message. The Holy Spirit, signs, wonders, the river, all the other things that want to creep their way in to become the message. John the one who had been with Jesus said, I want you to understand my little children. There's one message. That message. That's first of all a priority. We cannot lose that. You know one of the things I love about Red Point, and there are many things, but one of the things I love about you is that you've been going for almost 40 years. And in my travel, particularly the last six years where I've been on the road, because uh, I haven't led a church and I've sat with Meryl and I, we're talking about sitting, I drove across L.A. to the valley, which is about an hour and a half away, and met with a little group of, there weren't even 20, I think there were 12 of them, the pre-launch to a church plant, all the way through to the biggest church I think I've preached in is 6,000. Across the board, just watch the sweep. And I've watched churches that have been courageous enough to hold that message, the message, and not tire at it, never get bored with it, never get distracted from it, never find an alternative one just to get the goosebumps going, just to bring the crowd in, just to show cool pictures up there. Unapologetically, with conviction and passion and love and a broken heart, one message. And then he says this, and I'll explain what that is. He said, we have heard from him. This is not name dropping. He said, do you understand? I, I can imagine John as an old-timer standing and leaning on his kitty, looking with love. And he said, but I heard it from Jesus. 
Remember when we were sipping at the, high, at the, at the, the final supper? Now I'm creating a conversation. And, and I leaned into him and I said, Jesus, what's the thing? What, what's the thing we cannot lose? What's the thing we cannot forget? I heard it from him. And when I watched him with Peter on the beach, and they had that great beach barbecue, the fish that had just come in off the ocean, and while we were eating it, Jesus went up and sidled next to Peter, and I was tickled pink with intrigue. What was he going to say? And so I kind of shifted across to here. Peter, do you love me? Go and love my sheep. This is the message. Dear friends, I know we get tired of doing good. I know it's easy to become bored. I've been doing this a long time like many of you. But we don't have the luxury of getting bored. We don't have the privilege of passivity. We cannot dare develop a culture of cynicism because then we, and they're saying this is one of the things I love about Red Point, will become like many churches with a 40-year history and slowly dwindle our way to a bunch of old people who wrestle for hours at a committee meeting about the color of a carpet because they've lost the message. But we heard it from him. And then he says, thirdly, by way of introduction, and he says, I proclaim it to you. Now, why is that so important in our modern era? Because, again, having the privilege of watching cycles, whenever people carry a church wound, they get a revelation of a new way of doing church. They deconstruct the gathering. They deconstruct means, oh, I don't need to go to church anymore. It's just Jesus and me and my mates or Jesus and me and my kids. And we have a meal on a Sunday. And you know, the first time we did it, it felt so good. God's favor was on it. And, and my family and I, we said, that we've never had a Sunday morning as good as this. As if the feeling of breakfast as a family, because they've probably been on their cell phones all week anyway, that suddenly we feel like, wow, God's favor is on this. It's total deconstructionism. You know what? We don't preach. We just share. We just open the Bible and everyone has their opinion. John doesn't say that. He said, there's one message that I heard from him, and I proclaim that message to you. You know what I found interesting recently? Was that the atheist church in America is adapting and adopting our liturgy. They do this because they realize the incredible power in this. So their worship may be John Lennon. Imagine all the people, you know, here today, whatever. You who, you may say, I'm a believer. Oh, I'm not the only one. Oh, I feel so good. And then someone gets up and espouses some philosophical position and they do their amen equivalent and afterwards they have coffee together. Why? Because the devil can't create a better alternative so they imitate us. And what does the devil do to the church? You don't have to meet anymore. You don't need teaching. You don't need people to proclaim the scriptures to you. You can just share. What a tragedy. When this old timer says, I got the message. We heard it from him, and I am proclaiming it to you. Are you with me? All right. Number two. Those are the introductory thoughts he gives us. The second thing he does, and I'll read the passage to you, is this. And he says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, if you were like me, when I read that fairly recently, I realized I didn't have a clue what that meant. God's light sounds very cool and warm and fuzzy, but I didn't actually have a clue what that meant. 
Now, in teaching style, John uses what theologians call contrast. In order to understand this, he gives us that. So if we want to understand this God idea, he gives us the, the, the alternative or the opposite. And in this case, what he does is he contrasts God as light, and he's saying, well, I guess you don't understand what that means. It's not darkness. So I went into the text, and I said, where in the Scriptures is darkness prevalent? Here it is quickly, seven little places. The first is the cosmos. That was when God created, it was dark. It's beautiful. It's mysterious when those, when those um, I mean, the th- I watched Martian on the plane flying somewhere, and I just thought, it's my worst nightmare to be looking in the darkest space, as exquisite as what it is, and to be in a, in a, in a craft going there. And then to be stuck there is an horrific idea. But this darkness is exquisite. It's the cosmos. It's the sheer enormity of the universe. It's of endlessness. And all of the beauty that comes with it. The second darkness is night. And can I just throw it in very briefly? God created night to recreate us. Night, as it says in Genesis 1.5, is not just some random time in a 24-hour. It's where God empowered us to recreate ourselves. Center our world, as Meryl said, to create our due north again. And so I'm like you. I enjoy a bit of TV, catch up on the sports, the news, Maybe watch my favorite Vikings when Meryl's not around. She doesn't like death and destruction and headlessness and women going into battle, slaughtering people. So I have to watch it all by myself. <laughs> and so what happens is night that was there to recreate us has lost its recreative form. And it's now the time we busy our heart, busy our soul and attack our senses rather than restore it. That was my little two-minute rant. You can take it or do with it what you want. The third is climate. It's when those great storm clouds come in. Um, I was thinking about it. My daughter from Australia, you know, Mark and Ash Leader Church, and when they heard God sovereignly provided for them to come to the Kruger, she, she put on WhatsApp, she said something like, I'm looking forward to tasting the rain of Africa. And I knew instantly what she meant. I don't know of another place there may be on the globe where that high-felt storm when it rolls in and you see those big clouds coming in and suddenly the electricity, the lightning flashes its way across the sky and then these big raindrops come and pummel themselves into the dust of the African soil and then you can taste it. You can taste it. It's like Africa. I can taste the soils of Africa, the beauty of the climatological darkness. And those are all fun pieces, but can I get just a moment more sober with you? And that's the darkness of heaviness. In Isaiah 61, it speaks about the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Can I speak to those of you who wrestle with depression? I'm sorry, it's the silent scream of the church. No one wants to acknowledge it because it's very uncool. No one wants to validate the fact that sometimes the biological reality for that depression and heaviness is such that you need medication, but lo and behold, if anyone finds out, because surely you're charismatic, and everyone knows God heals, and everyone knows God heals today. I'm so sorry. The perversion of doctrine has silenced you into a scream in your inner sanctum where you can tell no one but your closest family and friends. It's part of the fallen world that we wrestle with depression. 
It's part of a demonic world that squeezes in us and us sometimes that we cannot but see the world immediately in front of us like a dust storm. Sometimes we have our prayers and we respond to altar calls and you probably get tired of being the one who goes forward and they're probably tired of seeing you come forward, but you're still living with darkness. My dear friends, the church should be the safe place for the silent scream, not the place of isolation. If you are struggling with that today, may God give you grace. And sometimes it's grace with medication. Sometimes it's grace with grace. Sometimes it's grace with many prayers. But it's okay. It's okay. If I can say it as a father, it's okay. May God give you grace and healing that you may lift, be lifted out of that darkness. But those who criticize have never got out of bed in the morning and not been able to see but beyond their toes who've never had to muster every ounce of energy they have to gather themselves, to get out of bed if you're a woman, to go and feed your kids and to send them off to school and then to plonk yourself down as the enemy says, you are useless. Do you know how useless you are? You can't even feed three kids. Do you know how useless you are? And eventually you find agreement with him easier than with God who describes your beauty endlessly. Please may this be a safe point that someone could get up here and preach and have the freedom to say, I too suffer with depression. My friend John Mark, who preached here in September, as you know, his first book was, and her name is Hope, his wrestle with depression. He told me, he told Meryl and I, that he used to drive home as a 20-something-year-old as the weight of the church just grew very quickly in 10 years from Uh, a handful of people to 6,000, and it nearly killed him. And he said he used to drive home across a little bridge, and he thought, all that I have to do is this, and it'll all be over. And there are times, he said, it took everything inside of him to hold as he cried out to God, God, please, let me just hold the steering wheel just straight one more time. That book has been a source of incredible affection and inspiration for the many who live with a silent scream. You're quiet. I haven't even got a joke right now. I haven't got anything to make it light. Almost done with the contrast of darkness. There is directional darkness. In our charismatic community, the, the sense is that we always know where we're going. The sense is we always know what we're going to do. The sense is our vision cast is always clear. Listen to this intriguing little verse in Micah. Therefore it will be night for you without vision, darkness for you without foresight. It's Micah 3.6. There will be night for you without vision, darkness for you without foresight. In our charismatic world, and we have these, and they're wonderful. These seminars on vision and destiny and live your dream and make your life count and all that. They're wonderful. I mean, I I do those things happily too. But dear friends, there are times when there is a God-inspired, a God-authored darkness around us. When we handed over our church six years ago, we didn't know what we were going to do. And um, uh, it was a very vulnerable time. I, I may have mentioned when I preached last time, forgive me if I'm repeating the story, but um, I mean, I, I wrestled with God. I said, God, I was then 52 years old. I should be the optimum of my earning potential. I should be leading my largest church. You know, we all translate what is success in our world. 
that God spoke so clearly to me, that, and I fought him. Only time in my life I fought the will of God to the best of my knowledge. And I fought him. And God gave Merrill a verse that has been one of our sanity points. Isaiah 50 paraphrased. I would rather walk in darkness than by the light of my own torch. For those who light their own torch shall live in torment. I will rather walk in darkness than by the light of my own torch. For those who light their own torch will work in torment. Is that a fair reflection, my love? And how many times in the last six years, Meryl and I have had to hold on to that verse for the sanity it brings. Because ultimately, it's about trusting God. Ultimately, it's about knowing that He loves me and cares for me and holds me in the palm of His hand. I'm going to bring a story forward that I was going to tell later, but it seems relevant now. You know what it's like, the fun there is of a father with his kids? I do, all dads might not do this. It's one of the things I love doing. Because for me, it was a, a sense of where my kid was in the trust journey. Where you plonk your little baby on the kitchen counter, and you step back and you say, jump. And the first time, invariably, the kid stands there somewhat traumatized, unless they're really radical, wild, and a hardy. Um, <laughs> And, and you stand here and they kind of lean forward because they will only let go when they can feel you. And of course, we don't rebuke our kids. You useless. You sucker jumping off kitchen counters. What are you going to do for the rest of your life? I mean, we don't do that, you know. Oh, Meryl, never look. T just leaned off the kitchen counter, you know. And after a few times, you do it and you take one step back. And you say, come on, Bones, jump. And he kind of looks, looks at Meryl, and Meryl's saying, you don't have to. And I'm saying, Meryl, would you like to go to the bedroom right now? <laughs> Come on, Bones, you can jump. And then he, I catch him, and I put him down, and I take two steps. Come on, boy, jump. And he jumps. Because it's a journey of trust. The, the, the God who is there when you, when, he, when you lean into him in your infant steps of your spiritual journey is also the one-step God, is also the two-step God. The one who caught me when I leaned in is also the God who will catch me at one step, who will catch me at two steps. And ladies and gentlemen, there is a directional darkness that's divinely inspired. God chooses to blind us. I will lead the blind, Isaiah says, by ways they have not known. But we, if I can be ruthlessly honest, including me, I'm in the front of the line, are control freaks. We want everything measured. We want everything spelt out. We want vision costs. We want strategic steps. And those things are fun. And I live in America, and America lives there. The fact that you never live out those strategic steps are incidental. You've got to have them. So I do chuck a little bit because they're not comfortable with the organic and the spirit-led and the sensitivity and the, the, the reality of a tumbleweed Christian experience. But I want to say to you, friends, there is a darkness that is divinely inspired that develops our trust from the leaner to the one-yard jumper, to the two-yard jumper. It's God-authored, God-inspired. Almost done with this. Thank you for being so... Oh, my word. Look at the time. Number six, the demonic darkness. And as I said, and I won't repeat it, thank you for Thursday night. Uh, we live in a sophisticated world where the demonic world has been eliminated. We don't want to talk about demons, the devil... We don't talk about those things. In the 90s, some of you who were there know we preached on that a lot. Derek Prince was highly inspiring in that all those years ago. But these days, nah, it's not so cool. You're not going to impact millennials by talking about devils and demons unless you talk about Pokemon and finding who knows whatever you're supposed to find. 
and I watched, I was walking down the promenade in Mstanga, and there were two kids, I'm guessing nine and 12. And I mean, they're running and they've got their Pokemon thing like this. I'm saying, you've got to be kidding me. Got it, got it. Well, I don't know what you're supposed to do. I've hatched it. I've, I've, I don't know what I've done, but I've done something. So the only spirituality that's valuable is esoteric and ethereal and mystical. There isn't a devil with a specific strategy to destroy you. There isn't a demonic world with an agenda to explode you as a community. Nah, that's too uncool. Now let's, let's just speak about peace and nice things. Craft beer and scotch, single malt, 12 years. All right, I've said enough about that. Um, can I just quickly, Nick, am I still okay? Just a few things about this exquisite God of light. Because I cannot, I dare not, and I, and, and I will shrink it, trust me. But, but I cannot leave you with simply the expose of darkness, including the uttermost, which I never got to. There are four things very simply about God as light. And the first is in 1 Timothy 6.16. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, who has, has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Ladies and gentlemen, sufficient to say, the only language Paul can find was unapproachable light. Dare I suggest the sovereign, supreme, ultimate God can so easily be shrunk, shrunk and, and, and limited to our world of understanding and our definitions. Please let God be God. Even Moses, who was so close and intimate with God, could not see God. God wouldn't allow him to, but for a brief passing. There is something exquisitely extravagant, endless, timeless, eternal, supreme, sovereign, about this great God we serve, do not ever shrink Him to but a moment, a definition, or a weakness. Secondly, uh, James chapter 1 verse 17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is immutable. That's where I was going to bring in the story. If he's a one-yard God, he's also a two-yard God, and he's a three-yard God. And sometimes for some of us, you and me alike, we are no longer the one-yard God leaders. We are fathers in the faith. He is not applauding if my 17-year-old son stands and on the kitchen counter and he's about big or bigger than me and he jumps one yard. I don't think he's expecting me to say, go T. That's amazing. Like the best jump ever. But if he says, hey, Pops, stand back. I'm running. And I'm going to jump from there, see if you can catch me. Now, I am nipping myself because I don't know if I can catch him. And he is indicative of the fact that he trusts me to be able to catch him. And, folk, the immutability of God, the fact that God does not change, means that God moves us from running up the tiny little hill like we saw the, the runners on the beachfront this morning. And you can see everyone kind of waddling their way around the fun run to that person who climbs up to Everest. What is your mountain? Where does God want to describe his immutability to you? He's not going to stand there to Bruce Fordyce and say, Great fun run, the big B. Great fun run. You did 5Ks, high five, you know, low five. You know, he's not going to do that. And for some of us, we're expecting God to rejoice at our fun run when actually he's putting an Everest before us. A change of gear. A getting ourselves trained and equipped. Putting those boots on us, those snow boots on, and all the other equipment we need, and looking at this incredible mountain that's impossible to climb. 
without embarrassing Meryl, I'm so proud of her standing there as a 52-year-old with a two-year master's degree ahead of her. And she hadn't studied for 32 years. And sometimes I had to walk her off the edge because she said, I'm done. Once she actually went in to see her prophet and said, I'm done, I can't do this. She knew she couldn't tell me. Until afterwards the prof said, heck yes you are. What is your Everest? What is the immutability of a God worth trusting who is light given to you that when you could trust Him for one step, you can trust Him for two steps, three steps, and a running start? 1 Corinthians 4, 5, thirdly, says this. He brings, He will bring light, the things that are hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Can I just say this quickly? And you guys have been so kind to me. God is not only sovereign, He's not only immutable, but He is the revealer of things. Please don't become, please hear my heart here. Because when I get out the pulpit and the anointing lifts off me, I'm just like you. Not fancier, more spiritual, more amazing. I wrestle with things that you wrestle with. But please don't think that the things we do or think about or want to do in darkness remain out of His vista. He will reveal it. He gives us grace. He gives us grace to acknowledge, to request grace, to transform. But if we stubbornly refuse, He will expose it. The things that happen in darkness, He shall bring to the light. I said that to my kids. I said, kiddos, please understand this. Dad and mom live very full lives. We don't know everything that happens, but I tell you who does, God. And if you get up to things, God will tell me. And they never believed me initially. And T will tell you, he's seated there. I don't want to make it awkward for him or embarrassing. But he has done things that he thought I wouldn't know until a father phones me. He says, Chris, I thought you'd want to know. Thanks so much. Put the phone down. Hey, Bones, I think there's something you've got to tell me, isn't there? And then he tells me more than I knew. (laughs) God shines his light into the dark places. Please don't think the whispers and quiet, dark corridors will not be placed on megaphones for everyone to hear. They will. Because God is a God of light. Darkness into light. Okay. He is completely and totally and perfectly beautiful. Wondrous and whole. There is no brokenness in Him. God is completely, totally, perfectly holy. Lacking nothing. There is no sin in Him. He is completely, totally, and perfectly present to reveal sin, rebellion, and wickedness. And He is completely, totally, perfectly trustworthy, dependable, And in peace. I close with this. Can I give you a charge? Can I ask four things of you as I close? The first is this. If God is light, we're called to be a lighthouse. A lighthouse exists not for its own benefit. As I was sitting prepared, I've been up since four this morning. And you watch the sun come up and you watch the lighthouse and what it serves and the role it plays. And the lighthouse is there to do a number of things very quickly. The first is to indicate potential danger. To indicate 
the danger that lies imminently for those who are blinded by their story. It's also there for those who are shipwrecked to find the quickest way to the shore. I did some study on uh, lighthouses, so that's what it does. But it's also a marker, as is the one near Durban Harbor, and as Norm so wonderfully found out when he fell off his... He didn't. He's way too good to do that. The devil made him fall off. (laughs) And swimming there in the middle of the entrance to the harbor, he realized, after all, this is probably not a good place to remain. For two reasons. There are johnnies, there are sharks that love coming through that entrance. And he's not particularly, he thinks they're of the devil. And, um, but more importantly, ships come in and out of harbor. Please get comfortable with the port nature of what God's called you to be and to do. People coming in and out of harbor. Limping in, flying out. Cargo in, cargo out. May God remind you of your lighthouse responsibility because this scripture has to go to the whole world. 60% of people, these stats haunt me. 60% of people will die today. 60% of people who die today have never heard the name of Jesus. I'm not sure how dare we can keep it myopically to ourselves. The message for the whole world. Secondly, very quickly, to plant communities of love for broken spaces and light for dark spaces. I was just praying this morning for you, obviously, and I was thinking of Rob and Glenda, our dear friends in Hong Kong, who've planted a great church. Finney and Izzy, who came from this house, who've planted into Australia. Matt and Jill, Jill was here last week, who were in Canberra. I've been to their church. It's a fun church, Australia. Um, the, the two communities in Holland with Rob and Alex, eh? In Holland. Grant and the crew in Durban, just the ones that come to mind. Yes, some haven't failed, but do you know the seed that the coxes sowed into the soil of Malaysia? We sit back and think, oh dear, it didn't work out. But do you know how many hours that man prayed? Do you know how many times he walked up and down the streets of Malaysia crying out to God for Malaysia, this Muslim country? Do you think all those those prayer seeds have fallen to the ground and are gone? Or do you think at some point in time someone else will arrive and say, well, this is easy. I heard how hard it was in Malaysia not knowing that it's the very seed of their prayers that created the life and the light that established communities of love to enter that Muslim state. Because a man and his wife took the gospel and his prayers to a foreign shore. And he came back thinking, hmm, I spoke to him in Cape Town recently. Was it worth it? And every man and woman and child that gets saved, that he will only meet in heaven one day. I wonder if God wouldn't come on there and say, Sean, come here. I want you to meet Echbal. Echbal got saved because of your prayers. And I know there will be no more tears, so I'm sure there will be rejoicing. And God will hold Sean's face like this and say, do you see why they are saved because of your prayers? I give you a charge to remain a three-generational church. Fathers, young men, and children. And lastly, thank you to fight the good fight for this great gospel. You know, John uses the word propitiation at I'm told it was a legal word in the day. And the, the, no, I can't describe the courtroom scene. Sufficient to say it means that God has not only 
had his wrath satisfied in Christ, but he turns it to favor. Ladies and gentlemen, I stand up here this morning to preach to you, not as a saint, but a sinner, a wretched sinner, who somehow in the grace of God and the blood of the Lamb he chose. Like Merrill as a 15-year-old, I was an 18-year-old. And now 40 years later, at the age of 58, I too stand up here a testimony of divine sovereign grace that God propitiated me. The wrath that he, he sees when he looks at my sinfulness and wretchedness and wickedness. And as he looks at me through his eyes of holiness and purity, Jesus steps between us. And the lens that Jesus has, it interrupts the Father's perfection. And he looks at me and he said, but Dad, I took Chris's son. And that momentary encounter of father saying, I have embraced his wickedness. The son, he, he steps aside and he beckons me and he says, I will put favor on you. Honest story and I close. The day Meryl finished her master's degree, we went out for dinner. And one of her Asian friends, uh, fellow uh, scholars, um, told us about this restaurant we didn't know existed. And they said, look, it's a four-hour wait, but it's well worth it. So we went there at about 4.30, I think, and managed to get like a 20-minute wait. We sat down, great restaurant, great food, full of Asian people. You know, this is going to be a great meal. And while we... A woman comes, young girl comes to ask us, Korean girl, delightful girl, comes to us and um, text comes through. And there's a picture of my daughter on the red carpet in L.A. She got nominated for an Emmy for Best Original Song for a TV series. And I start weeping. And this young girl is disorientated now. You know, does she walk away? Does she smile? Does she, are you okay? And I looked at her, I can't remember her name, and, and I said, no, these are happy tears. And I said, my wife's just graduated with her master's degree and my daughter's on the red carpet right now. And I'm, tears are streaming down my face and she starts jumping up and down. I've never met anyone who knows someone who's famous. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, well, will you sign an autograph? So I said, well, you know, it's not... Um, I, I don't know, what am I supposed to do, you know? The Father's heart when John wrote this lecture, was the fact that God turns his wrath and anger at our wickedness, sinfulness, and transgression, and he turns it to favor. I stand up here before you, really touting no gifting, except the privilege of proclaiming God's favor. Christianity is tasteless when we negotiate to live it within our own comfort. But when we surrender a life of sacrifice and service, it is more exquisite than a meal crafted by the most gifted chef because it's a meal crafted by favor. Some of you are, I close, wrestling with the hand of God to assignments. And you're standing on the kitchen counter saying, should I jump? And your mind races with you. Well, what if he doesn't catch you? What if it's a Sean Cox thing? Well, Sean will meet the fruit of his prayers in heaven. 
But when you say yes, your life becomes governed even in darkness by the overriding favor of a sovereign God who is immutable. Let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, unapproachable light, you reign supreme, there is no one higher, there is no equal. And yet in the beauty, perfection, holiness of your majesty, you came to dwell amongst us to grant us favor, grace, redemption. I know you're tugging at people's heart. I know today, even with Merrill's word, that some have lost true north fighting in a human way for what they want to hold on to. But we only have what you give us. And sometimes we have to jump off the counter to get it. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's what I am. I want to ask you, not because we're a charismatic church and do charismatic things, but sometimes it is good to say, Lord, that's me. I'm not going to call you to the front. Nick may do that or Grant or someone, but I want to ask you, if the story of the kitchen counter means something to you, would you stand? Because I think God is inculcating a new language of trust. You've trusted me when you've lent into me. You've trusted me when you've jumped one step, but I'm asking you to jump two now. Would you stand, please? While they stand, while they stand, can I ask also those of you who've been suffering the silence, the silent scream of depression, spirit of heaviness, I'm so sorry we've treated you badly. We've made you feel like second-rate citizens, like if you really believe God, you wouldn't have those struggles. I'm so sorry. Would you stand while everyone else is standing? Lastly, there are definitely some fresh divine assignments that God has been dispensing. But they're all based on favor, not because you deserve it, but because He gives them. For some of you, there is an Everest, and you've been fighting that. You say, God, I'm happy at base camp. I don't want to go and climb that mountain. What happens if I don't get to the top? Sean Cox will meet people who are the result of his prayers, as will you. Father, you see our hearts. There's no emotionalism here, just a desire to be men and women always obedient, always honest about our weaknesses and frailties, and who want to live in the space of favor, undeserved mercy. You see our hearts, and you love us. Of that I'm absolutely certain. The God of light.